The things we tend to argue about in church can sometimes be rather silly. Like, take song preference, for example. Uh, like, some people are really into hymns, other people are really into modern worship songs. Right, and so on, like, the hymn side, like, well, it's a different style. Maybe some people that are younger just haven't heard a ton of them, and it's older, it's a different way of singing. You don't repeat anything, you kind of get lost in the flow. But, I mean, in response to that, uh, if certain songs have lasted, you know, hundreds of years, there's probably something deeply meaningful about them. On the other side of that, you know, uh, modern worship songs, like the usual critique that I hear about them is like, you sing the same line over and over again. Like, did we not think of other words? In response, I would just give you, if we applied it correctly the first time, we probably wouldn't have to repeat it. But even, like, weirdly enough, music in church has always been something of a sticking point. Uh, when the saxophone was invented, uh, they banned it from church because they thought it would bring out the devil. Like, they thought, like, if you played the alto saxophone in the church building, like, the devil would come up from the floorboards. Um, which, by the way, if you think the devil's in the floorboards of your church, you may have another problem. But it also goes to everything else. Like, those preferences just kind of, like, seep into everything. Uh, I, at a previous church I pastored, I actually had an entire family leave the church because someone amended during the sermon. True story. If any of you would like to leave, I'll turn my back. <laughs> I won't look, I promise. Um, but it seems like we could use a healthy antidote to our self-centeredness. Thank God for James chapter 4. Let's pick this up where we've left off so far in the series. It says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Now, this is exaggeration. People in the churches James was writing to were not killing each other. He probably would have used more than one sentence to address that kind of a problem. But he's making his point. Like, why do we tend to bicker? Like, as people, but even people in churches, why do we tend to do that to each other? Right? Why do we tend to pick the preference and just go after it? Uh, and James is like, it's because you're selfish. And so to rotate back to what we talked about last week, like, when we look in the mirror... What do we find? Or maybe you actually took uh, that last bit of the message last week, like, and you were honest with yourself. Like, what do you find when you look at it? Is it been a case of like, okay, here's where I'm at. Here's where I'm trying to go. We're going to try and like take our lumps and we're going to get there. We're going to pray through it. We're going to pray that God helps me to get there. Or is it one of those like, yeah, okay, I'm really interested in me. And that just kind of is how we roll about it. But James says if we tend to infight a lot, we tend to not agree a lot, we tend to like argue and try to get our way a lot, the root cause may just be ourselves. But he won't let good enough be good enough. Because he's been on it for the better part of a chapter now, and he keeps going. Look what he says next. You do not have because you do not ask God, when you ask, you do not receive 
because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. As it turns out, God is just as interested in the how and why as the what. I had a friend ask me a question a few years ago, and it still tortures me on and off uh, today. It's this. If God answered all the prayers I've said in the last month, how many new people would have been added to the kingdom of God? If God answered everything that I have prayed in the last month, would it change the world? Or just my world? Or would I just get my way a little bit more often? I'll be honest with you, over the last eight years, the most common prayer that I have prayed is, God, please do not let me be nauseous or vomit. So eight years ago, when Abby and I were first married, uh, I was playing in some tournament slow-pitch softball. I know, you're impressed. And we were in a tournament, we were in a semifinal, it was going pretty well, we were up 17 to 3, but the other team did not like that reality. Uh, and so they pinch ran a very large man onto first base, uh, and on the ensuing play I tried to turn a double play, and he ensured that that was not going to happen. So had a concussion, but tried to go to work for the better part of a week. Uh, I couldn't think, couldn't like focus on anything. I was constantly trying to hold my stomach together. It's just like, what is happening? Ended up having to go to the hospital, and then I was on bed rest for 10 days. But because I didn't get it treated right away, I had rather severe symptoms last for a long time. Uh, so for the first several years of Abby and I's marriage, I would wake up every night shaking, uh, and wildly nauseous uh, and like try to sprint to the bathroom to make it in time. We also couldn't go out to restaurants uh, for the first two or three years just because the amount of activity would also set it off. Like there's too much motion, too many things going on, too many lights, TVs, noise, sound, uh, clinking of forks and knives because apparently people stab their plates when they're trying to eat food. <laughs> but I'd have to like go outside and just try to like recompose myself and, and get it together. Uh, but I couldn't even like ride in the car years. Uh, and driving it was a little better, but I could only make it like five or ten minutes at a time. And it became this like, every time I would sit in the driver's seat of my car just to like get to work, it became this beautiful dependency moment on God. Because I'd be like, God, please don't let me be nauseous or vomit. Just please help me get there. God, please make me functional so that I can actually do what I think you've like designed me to do, called me to do. Like, whether it's getting to work or getting back to the house or, like, getting over to a friend's house, like, just to get, like, I would not want to relive that, but it became this, like, beautiful dependency of, like, God, like, if I'm going to hold my cookies down, it's going to be because that you did it. But somehow over the years, God make me functional became a prayer of, God, please just keep me comfortable. Because thankfully, the symptoms are far less now. Uh, it's been months since I've had any kind of episode. Every once in a while, like something random will just kind of make me nauseous, but it's mild, and that's why we invented the magic of Pepto-Bismol, the magical pink chewable pill that solves all your problems. Right? And also, mild nausea is not a big deal. 
but almost like a reflex, that prayer will shoot back. It's like, okay, God, keep me comfortable so I can keep going. But also, that self-centeredness, when it seeps that far into a prayer life, makes that question my friend asked me really uncomfortable to go back to. Because if God answered all of my prayers over the last month, would I just be more comfortable or would there actually be new people in the kingdom of God? One of those things is eternal. For us, if we get to a point where not only has our own selfishness caused us to just kind of be bitter and uh, salty with everyone else around us, uh, and then we end up just like picking fights for no good reason over things that don't matter, but it seeps so far in that it's like our prayer lives get affected by that. Like things have gone so far downhill, and James like has something to say about that. Look where he goes with this. You adulterous people. Again, exaggeration. It's a biblical theme, though, uh, but it's an exaggeration, again, to get the point across. But you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell within us, but he gives us more grace? That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Hold up. You're saying that if we start just fighting among one another, or just like not getting along or having a rough patch, Somehow the devil's involved in that? Yep. There's a wonderful quote by Dallas Willard, uh, and it's to the effect of, we, as people, are a small but not insignificant part of a cosmic battle between good and evil. See, as it turns out, in the logic of James, the decisions we make, how we speak to one another, how we choose to live our lives is a choice to partner with either good or evil. And that's where that verse comes out of the uh, uh, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's not like, oh, every time I just have like a mild temptation, I resist once and I never have it again. No, that would be out of context. First of all, the line started with submit yourselves to God. As in partner with the way of Jesus then fight the devil, not each other. But that's where it rests. If we choose to live the way of Jesus, that is partnering with good. And by the way, this is not a fair fight. Like sometimes in church, like the way that we talk about it, the way that we think of it, it's like, okay, Jesus, devil. And it like, it might go one way or another. No, no. Jesus, devil. Jesus, anything that resembles evil. It's not close. Us on our own, not going to shape up well. Us with Jesus, yeah, this is going to be fine. But as it turns out, when our selfishness gets that far into us, it's a way in which we choose to partner with the wrong thing. 
Thankfully, James gives us uh, some ways to look at this where we actually have some options. Uh, He gives us two practical ways to kind of deal with this. Uh, Look at where it picks up in verse 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. First off, didn't that kind of sound like the intro speech to faith? Right? He's referring to them as sinners, but actually like, come near to God, like in the whole like washing and purifying. Like that sounds like the intro speech to faith. Like that sounds like where you would start. Here's the thing though. He's talking to experienced Christians. The churches that James was writing to are full of people that have known Jesus for a while. They've got old timers. And James gives the intro speech? I'd say one way that we can fend off this self-centeredness that tends to creep into us is to remember how lost felt. Do you remember what it was like before you had Jesus? Remember what life was like when you didn't actually have hope? You ever been to a non-Christian wedding? I actually heard this vow uh, at one wedding of a couple of friends of mine that were not believers. Um, It was the husband to the wife. Um, I promise to love you for as long as you make me happy. Did not end well. But also, what else do you have at that point if you don't have Jesus? Been to a funeral of a non-believer? How uncomfortable that is. But do you remember what it was like for you to not actually have something deep, meaningful, and significant you could attach yourself to that was bigger than just your opinion of the world? Remember what it was like to wake up in the morning, look at the mirror, and not like what you found, and not have hope for that to change? Do you remember what it was like when you were lost? Then do you remember what it was like when you first found Jesus? Nothing else mattered. You didn't even care what church you came to. You just rolled in and you're like, it didn't even matter what style of worship was going on. It didn't matter if the preacher was any good. Like you were just happy to find other people that like also knew Jesus. You were just at the building because that's where y'all went. You didn't even care if anyone thought you were weird. You're just like, hey, I'm just going to tell my friends and family because I want them to have the same hope that I do, right? Not a whole lot mattered. That spirit, that outlook gets rid of a lot of selfishness. The other one that James landed uh, that part of the passage on is humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. First of all, humility is not degrading yourself. Don't insult your creator and say you don't have skills that he definitely gave you. You can also go the, uh, what's his name? Tim Keller. Thanks, Wendell. Uh, Tim Keller route. 
And humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Right? This word humility uh, in both Testaments actually means the same thing. It literally means to get low. To put yourself in the place of a servant and actually be willing to serve. Basic definition is just to get low. Not degrade yourself in your head or say a bunch of words that don't actually mean anything. You'd be like, I'm not actually good at that, even when you are. But just be willing to serve, be willing to lower yourself. Because you notice how the passage went? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and then he will lift you up. Like James actually extends this in the next couple of verses. Uh, Listen to what he says. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you? To judge your neighbor. Unless you have the power to rescue someone's eternity or conversely destroy it, you don't get to judge. We don't get to sit in that spot because we're not Jesus. We can repeat what he said, that's fair game, because we can always pass along like the information of what he's decided, but we don't get to make those calls ourselves. It's a nice reminder of remembering our place, right? The logic in Romans 12 about humility is just like, hey, take an accurate accounting of yourself. Here in James, it's remember your actual place in the world. Just have some humility. So I don't want to leave us Uh, in a very impractical, like, humility, because that's a really, like, out there kind of word that no one really defines super well, and it's kind of hard to practice because we're like, I think I know what that means, but not really. So I'm just going to give us nine sample ways where we could practice humility. This is not an exhaustive list. It's just ideas. But nine just ideas on how to maybe incorporate a little bit more humility in our lives. Number one, suspend curiosity. Curiosity is very good when it comes to learning. However, it does not mean you need to know everyone else's business. If the sentence or the conversation is starting, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? Or like, do you hear what she said? Or, oh, I heard he's got this problem. And it's not even your friend. It's just about somebody random. Like, you don't need to be in the conversation. You also don't need to start that conversation either. There's only one being in all the universe that needs to know everybody's business. His name is Jesus. None of us are him. Be willing to suspend that urge to get into everyone's business when we don't need to be. Number two, celebrate when others win and don't immediately make it about yourself. Like, hey, I heard you got a promotion. Did you hear about the time that I got promoted? Nope. Also, just because something awesome happened for someone else doesn't mean that we deserved it. Just celebrate when other people win. Let it be about them. It's their moment in the sun. Just let them have it. Also, they're more likely to celebrate when you win if you do that, right? There's a certain reciprocity that happens there. But also just 
enjoy it when other people have success. Enjoy it with them. Next, uh, do a good thing without demanding credit. Pretty self-explanatory. Number next, because I already forgot what number we're on. Learn something new. Because when you go to learn something new, you admit that you don't know everything. Right? Like, if we assume we know everything and we don't, we don't need to grow, we don't need to expand, like, our, our intellectual world, or we don't need to expand the things we can do, right? That's a rather cocky thing to say. Uh, if we're still alive, we don't know everything, and there's things to learn. If you don't know how to change the oil in a car, find someone here who does. It will not take that long. It's a little messy, but just, like, don't put your face under it. Like, yeah, some of you got the joke. Thank you. Um... <laughs> But, like, find someone who does. It's not going to take that long, but it's a useful thing to know how the car that you drove here works. Maybe learn to cook a new dish, right? Maybe expand from your mother's cookbook or your dad's cookbook, whoever did that in the house growing up. Like, expand something new. Maybe expand beyond boxed macaroni for your ability to cook. Chicken and rice dishes, not that difficult. It's pretty hard to screw them up. Just please cook the chicken all the way through or you will hate your life uh, immediately after that. Yeah, that was for the other half of the people that didn't laugh at the oil change thing. See, you can learn from each other. Very closely related to this, uh, get wiser one book at a time. If you don't read, you are doing yourself a disservice. But learn things from other people who wrote it down for you, right? Maybe you're on the super American pragmatic, like everything I do must have a point and it must be productive and it must be efficient. Read some fiction. Learn how to tell a story. Learn how to enjoy a story. It'll help you enjoy your life. If you're into like the fiction side of things, okay, read like psychology or something like nonfiction, like just read something that has that more like angle of improvement or help or something, or just like to know different things. Pick an author you haven't read before. Because we all tend to go back to the same well a lot when it comes to who we listen to, whether it's podcasts or music or books, right? Pick a new one. There are thousands of amazing authors out there. Pick one. Next up, uh, this is more of a mindset one, but nothing is beneath you. Right? Humility is like to get low, right? but nothing's beneath you. If you see garbage, pick it up. If you're in a space, it's yours to own, even if someone else technically has their name on the deed. Clean it. Something fascinating happened uh, in the college I went to. This was not in my class, but it was in one uh, adjacent to us. Uh, it was about the third week of class, and all the students came in. It's been long enough where people had gotten to know the lay of the land. They got to know each other. Everyone was kind of in their groove for how class was going to go that semester. And uh, the professor like, walked in and was like, all right, pop quiz. If you get the question right, and there's only one, if you get it right, you do not have to attend again. You will get an automatic A. You're done. Obviously, students were very interested in this. The question, what's the night janitor's name? No one got it. Because what that professor had noticed was that the students idolized the professors because they were smart. 
They really liked each other because they were the same age and life stage. But they also couldn't be bothered to pick up their own messes because it was someone else's job. Eh, someone else would take care of that. Someone else would do that. But then even as they were like coming in during the day, they wouldn't even like talk to the person taking out the garbage. They wouldn't like deal with that. And so, thought he'd just make a rather big point of it. But nothing is beneath you. Number seven, stop managing your own image. You ever notice like in conversations, we add those like weird little caveats to the front of it? Like, I never watch TV, but last night we binged like a whole season of whatever. Like, why do we do that? <laughs> why do we care that much about pe what people think of us? If we cared that much, initially we should probably just made a different choice. But like, we all watch TV, whatever. Or my personal favorite, my kids never do this. Right, first... Kids are kids. None of us are expecting that a three-year-old, a 10-year-old, even a 17-year-old is going to be like a flawless run through life. None of us are. Like, we know that. It's okay if your kid does something weird. It's fine. But we also feel like we need to put in these like conversational caveats to make ourselves look a little bit better before we say the weird thing. So just maybe not. Just let your actions stand for themselves and see if you're comfortable with that. Last two, uh, number eight, name your sin. It is very hard to be cocky and prideful when you're very aware of what Jesus is rescuing you from. It is very difficult to be selfish when you're very aware of your own personal need for a savior. So just name that to God. Like in prayer, like name that to God. Like find a friend, someone you trust and that's trustworthy. Like confess that to them. Like mention it to your spouse. First of all, they already know. But be honest about that. It's very, very difficult to land in such a selfish and salty spot when we're aware of what we need help with. And for this last one, we're going to need the uh, band's help with this, and so they're going to come back uh, and lead us in a second. But recognize that Jesus is truly enough. So in this cosmic battle between good and evil that seems way beyond us, because it is, like, he's enough for that. But then also that really powerless feeling that might have crept into you this week when you learned that more than 25,000 people died in an earthquake in Turkey and in Syria. And you're like, I, don't, I can't do anything about that because you can't. And a tragedy happened. You know, Jesus is actually enough for this. Yeah, Jesus is enough to inspire churches in Turkey and Syria, small and few but mighty as they are, to be able to love their neighbor. Yeah, Jesus is enough to actually inspire uh, Syrian refugees who may have lost a sibling to still go through that grieving process with enough grace for other people that it sticks out. Jesus is enough that when the people of God pray to him, he can motivate those of us that can actually do something about that, to do what's necessary. 
because of Jesus, our prayers are actually something to tip the scale. Whether it's in the grand sense, the tragic sense, or even that personal sense, Jesus is enough for that too. One of our common issues is that we can't be content. Like it's, things are just never enough. Things are never enough. We have to get more, get more, get more, get the next job, the next house, the next thing. Or like we finally get to the goal we were shooting for and we immediately have to make a new one because we just can't like sit still and be content with what we have and who we are. And Jesus can take care of that. That when you look in the mirror, it does not have to be miserable. For the daily, like, okay, how on earth do I deal with this? Jesus is enough for that. But you know what you value by what you'll trade away everything else for? What you give up time for? What you give up your goals for? What you give up a little bit of that self-centeredness for? Walking with Jesus is worth it. That's the only thing meaningful enough, significant enough, and actually powerful enough. There's really nothing else. Would you stand and pray with me? God, thank you for today. Thank you for a moment to stop the noise and the chaos and look at you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending Jesus. He lived, he loved, he cared, he preached, he healed, he died, he rose and ascended. And now we get to pray through him. And so Jesus, thank you for what we have. Thank you that you move. Thank you that you do things that only you can do. But in each and every one of us, give us that holy contentment in you. Yes, there will always be things that need to get done. Yes, there are always tasks to accomplish. Yes, there are dreams to be had, chased, and won. But first and foremost, Jesus, may we always see you as enough for us. This we pray in his name. Amen.